We're looking at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. We live in a fractured world. Several weeks back, the Sunday before the inauguration, um, I preached on Daniel 7, Daniel's great vision which compared the great empires of the earth to oppressive beasts which were lumbering across the stage of history, trampling on God's vulnerable people. And uh, this vision also held out an incredible hope because it assured us that in the end, one like a son of man, a truly human one, gets to rule history for good, forever and forever. And some of you wanted to know afterwards, given that I preached that in the context of the inauguration, was I saying someone was the beast? Was I saying Trump was the beast? Was I saying that Obama had been the beast? And I wasn't saying any of that. But over the past weeks, as, as Trump and his supporters on the one hand and his many opponents on the others have been going at it, they've been slandering each other, they've been demonizing each other, they've been trying their best to destroy each other, it seemed less like one is the beast and the other is a noble hero and more like a dogfight between two beasts just trying to tear one another apart. Now, hear me, I'm not making a definitive theological or political statement there. I'm just reflecting on how it feels in our country right now, right? (laughs) The bitter division, the the fragmentation. And, And it makes me wonder, what's our role as followers of the Son of Man? The one who, uh, or rather as ones, we, who are to seek first, who are to represent as first priority a different kind of kingdom. Who worship a humble, crucified leader. Who hold out good news for all people. What do we have to say as followers of Jesus to such a fragmented world? And what can we show the world by our lives, by our example, by the way we work out our differences as a community. That's important this morning, right? As, as later we're having a congregational meeting to vote on an issue as a church that some of us have strong feelings about, just like Alexander and Tabitha had strong feelings this morning. An issue which could divide us, which could cause animosity. What does it mean to be God's people in fractured situations? Today's passage is an excellent place to look for answers. It it gives us good news, great news, that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to mend all of these fractures and to reconcile our broken, disjointed world so that all things become one again, whole, in harmony, under the good leadership of Jesus. The Old Testament calls this shalom. It's translated peace in the New Testament. And and this good news of of universal oneness and and peace where all the fractures are mended under Christ is what Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about. Many have said, and I think they're right, that Ephesians is Paul's fullest and best summary of what he believes the gospel is. Listen to a couple statements from Ephesians which summarize Paul's gospel. First, from Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He made known to us the mystery of his will to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring unity 
to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What is God's will that's being fulfilled by Christ? It's to bring unity to all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Won't that be awesome? And then in Ephesians 2, 15 and 16, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Through Jesus Christ, God is reconciling people to God and people to one another. And he's not just reconciling people. God is making all things one, things in heaven and things on earth. Families, institutions, governments, cultures, ideologies, classes, all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's gospel, and that's good news. And it's already begun. Already, because of Jesus, families are working out their differences and growing in love. Whites and African Americans and Latinos are sitting down at the same table in respect and honor and serving one another. Nations are ceasing their fighting and working together to help the needy among them. Teens are befriending the socially awkward and inviting them in. It is happening. It doesn't always make the news. Sometimes it happens in small, barely noticeable ways. But under Jesus, as his followers put his kingdom first and seek to be his peacemakers, the fractures are being mended and all things are being made one. And what doesn't get accomplished now in this lifetime, and there's still plenty that's not done, but Jesus will fully accomplish the rest of it when he returns. What a wonderful day that will be. In the meantime, Paul urges us in chapter 4, live a life worthy of this calling that you've received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. If, if we have acknowledged that Jesus is our King and, and the Savior of the world, then we have received a calling. A calling to God's mission of reconciliation and healing. This mission of peace and unity. So that as a church, as a community of Jesus' followers, we show the world what is coming in the future. And how we can start living that way now. Paul spent the first three chapters in, in Ephesians waxing eloquent about this calling. About the wonder of what God is doing in the world, in the universe, through his son Jesus. And now, starting in chapter 4, Paul tells us our part in that story. We're to walk worthy of this calling. We're to get in step with the bigger thing that Jesus is doing. We're to become a part of God's mission to bring unity to all creation through Christ. As I've put it in today's biblical, uh, key biblical truth, our unity shows what salvation looks like. So how do we walk worthy of this calling? Paul tells us in verse 3, and we'll come back to verse 2 in a little bit, we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of shalom, peace. Let me unpack this incredible calling. Now notice right off, we who follow Christ do not have to unify ourselves. We don't have to create the unity. God has already unified us. 
Our unity is a given. We just have to maintain it. Paul has already told us in Ephesians 2, particularly in verses 14 to 18, all about how God has unified us. I read some of it a few minutes ago. Let's look at it again. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14. And the skit we saw alluded to this. For he, Christ, is himself our peace, who has made the two, Gentile and Jew, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his own flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Let me explain how this works. Things that were dividing Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day, those things were the law of Moses, the different aspects of that law. Jews kept the law, Gentiles did not. Jews circumcised their sons. Gentiles did not. Jews ate kosher. Jews kept the Sabbath. Gentiles did not. So how were Gentiles and Jews supposed to come together as equal participants in Christ's body? If Gentiles couldn't be as good as Jews, couldn't eat at the same table as Jews, couldn't measure up to Jews, the Old Testament law was dividing them like a huge religious wall. So Christ tore that wall down, abolishing it on the cross. And in place of the law, Christ became the new standard. Only through faith in Christ now can anyone, Jew or Gentile, be part of God's people. Only by following Christ and his teachings can anyone live a life pleasing to God. Christ himself is our peace, Paul says in 2.14. Christ is the basis of our unity. And this unity, this peace, this reconciliation begins with God's people. And then through us and the message about Jesus, it's spreading to the entire world. So let me ask, for the Jews and Gentiles back then, it was the laws of Moses which were dividing them. For us today, what threatens to divide us? Whether we're pro-Trump or against Trump, too conservative, too liberal... Whether we read the Bible to say that only men should preach and have authority in the church, or whether we read it to say that in Christ men and women are equal. Whether we're under 35 and we're millennials, or whether we're a bit older than that and we're everybody else. (laughs) We could think of many other issues too, right, which can divide us. But Paul is adamant Christ himself is our peace. In verse 3, Paul says, By Christ's death on the cross, God has wedded us together with a bond of peace. As a prisoner writing this, I wonder if Paul was looking down at his his own shackles and and the Roman soldier he would have been bound to. and, And he was thinking, that's just how tightly God has shackled together his people. Bonding together by by God's work of peace in Jesus Christ on the cross. God has already done that work among us. And as his people, it's our job just to maintain it. I think of the old C.S. Lewis song, I'm so happy to be stuck with you. In our passage, Paul also talks about the unity of the spirit. 
After God and Christ did away with the law which divided us, God did one better. He made us his own temple and he came to dwell in us by his spirit. Again, Paul's thinking of Ephesians 2, verse 18. Through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit. And we're God's temple, verse 22. One dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jewish insider, Gentile outsider, now in the very presence of God, together by one spirit. We all have access to God the same way, by one spirit. So how could we possibly be divided? To put it another way, God is building us together, knitting us together, forming a web of of interdependent relationships. And God says that this community he's forming, that he dwells like a king in it as a temple. How dare we pull God's temple apart? So Paul urges us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. One commentator remarks that the verb Paul uses here has an element of haste, of of urgency, or even a sense of crisis to it. In other words, do it now. Make it your top priority. Work at it with all your might. Don't let anything pull apart this wonderful unity that God has established. Also, keep the unity of the Spirit. This next verb translated keep is also a powerful one. N.T. Wright describes it as mounting guard over that unity as one would set a troop of soldiers to guard a city or a treasure. Keep the unity of the Spirit. So why is this unity so important? Well, if what God is about in the world, if, if God's big plan is all about unifying all things under Christ, how in the world will anyone believe it if God's own people are bickering and squabbling like children? How do we feel, for example, when we learn about Christopher Robin Milne, the son of A.M. Milne, creator of Winnie the Pooh? Maybe you know the story um, of how A.A. Milne told the Winnie the Pooh stories when Christopher was a child, about Christopher's stuffed animals. And, and he included Christopher Robin himself in the stories, and if you've read them, such a positive and encouraging and warm and endearing way. But then you find out that the real Christopher Robin grew up and later confessed in his memoirs that as, as a real child, in real life, he, he actually felt sorely neglected by his father. Like his, his father never had time for him, didn't care for him. And, and this threatened to cripple Christopher all through his life. How does that make us feel? Or when we hear that Dr. John Watson, the, the famous behavioral psychologist in the early 1900s, who wrote extensively on child rearing at the time, had children who grew up to be adults who couldn't cope with life. And two of them attempted suicide. Children show what a father is really like. Do we, by our lives, by our actions, show what our father is really like? Well, Paul urges us in light of who our father is and what our father has done to walk worthy of the calling we've received to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It makes me think of an old Peanuts cartoon. I've shared this one before. 
um, Lucy, uh, Linus is, is in the living room, he's watching TV, and, and Lucy comes in and demands that he change the TV channel, and she threatens him with her fists. And uh, Linus says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? And Lucy replies, these five fingers. <laughs> Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together into a single unit, they are a weapon that's terrible to behold. And Linus says, what channel do you want? <laughs> and then he turns away and he looks at his own fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> so how do we guard and protect and maintain the wonderful unity that God has wrought in us? Paul tells us. First in verse 2, we've got to grow in character. And then second in verses 4 to 6, we've got to keep in touch with reality. So first, character. James Chung, who's the evangelism director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, writes, we need to become the kind of good we want to see in the world. In everything we do, we bring everything we are to it. Our motivations, our instincts, our methods. We're all damaged and we need healing before we can do true healing around us. Participating in, in the salvation of the whole world begins with our own hearts. We've got to be the good news that we want to see around us. And what does it take to get along with others? Well, Paul tells us what kind of character it takes. First, Humility and gentleness, or meekness, some translations put it. And who's our example of humility and gentleness? Jesus, right? He says in, in Ephesians, uh, rather, sorry, Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. For gentle or, or meek, think of a, a fierce wild stallion who has been brought under such control that a small child can stroke its nose. A gentle person can be very strong, but doesn't feel the need to assert his rights or make demands. And a humble person doesn't think she's more or less than she truly is. Rather, she's very comfortable, she's at ease with who she is. You may have heard C.S. Lewis' famous quote about humility in mere Christianity. He writes, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humble people, gentle people are easy to get along with. They aren't touchy. They don't get easily offended. They don't feel slighted when they're not noticed or don't get their way. It isn't only that these offenses don't bother them, it's that very often they don't even notice that they happened. They're too busy genuinely thinking of other people to worry much about themselves. One time, uh, the devotional Our Daily Bread told the story about Booker T. Washington. He was the renowned, well-respected uh, black scholar who started a university in Alabama soon after the Civil War. And in his own day, he was of the statue of Martin Luther King Jr. But one day, while Washington was walking in an exclusive section of town, he stopped 
he, or he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. And not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping some wood for her. And instead of getting offended or saying, don't you know who I am? Professor Washington smiled, he rolled up his sleeves, and he proceeded to do the chore that she'd requested. When he was finished and she'd paid him, he even carried the logs into the house and stacked them by the fireplace. Well, a little girl recognized who he was and later revealed who he was to the woman, and she was aghast. And so the next morning, this embarrassed woman went to see Washington in his office at the university, and she apologized profusely to him. His response, it's perfectly all right, madam. Occasionally I enjoy doing a little manual labor and beside it's a delight to do something for a friend. That's humility. That's gentleness. Another thing about being humble and and gentle is that such people don't find it hard to apologize or, or to forgive. They have nothing to prove. They have no need to defend their reputation. If they've hurt you or they, and they've made a mistake, they're genuinely sorry. And if you've hurt them, they can forgive you because they know, know that they've made, missed, uh, messed up a million times themselves. Such people live in enviable freedom. And Paul says this is who we are to become. Like our Lord, we're to be completely humble and gentle. And then Paul goes on with a second pair of character traits. Patience and the quality of bearing with one another in love. Now, the Greek word translated patience here doesn't mean patience with circumstances, as in, I was patient when the line at Starbucks was so long. <laughs> no, it means patient with people. When, when, they, when they hurt me, when they disappoint me again and again. The old King James, which was read for us this morning, translates it long-suffering. And that captures the idea. Hanging in there with people through thick and thin. It's the kind of patience God shows toward us. How many times have we, we told God that, that we're going to take him more seriously? We're going to deal with that area of sin in our lives. We're, we're going to spend more time with God. And, and, and then we keep proving unfaithful. We keep falling short. We, we keep letting God down and disappointing him and breaking his heart. And yet God is patient with us. God suffers with us long. And not just us. God bears with his people and his world millennia after millennia. And this is where the second character trait of this second pair comes in. Bearing with one another in love. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you are right now, with another person or maybe a group of people, and they're driving you around a bend? Yes. (laughs) Sorry, Peter. Uh, (laughs) They're constantly disappointing you, maybe. And, and, and maybe you, you've forgiven them. But, but every time you did, you, you hoped that they would change and, and that things would get better, but, but they let you down again. And, and many times you've said to yourself, I don't know how long I can keep doing this. I don't know how long I can, I can take it. I don't know how long I can hold on in this relationship. Well, the kind of patience Paul is talking about, which bears with one another in love, has only one answer. You hang in there for just as long as God has hung in there with you. (laughs) You keep holding on. You never give up. Not ever. 
As Paul puts it in his famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The the strength of our unity as a community isn't measured by how easily we get along or how few conflicts or problems we have. It's measured rather by how committed we are to hang in there together and to work things out through thick and thin. So, character, keeping the unity of the Spirit, bonded together by the Spirit, takes character. Second, it also takes keeping in touch with reality. Because the reality is, as Paul's reminded us in verses 4 to 6, that those of us who follow Christ have the same future, the same status, and the same God. First, we have the same future. Paul says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. In other words, we're all on the same bus headed to the same place. God has one people. The spirit has one temple to dwell in. Jesus is head of one body. It's that way now, and it will be that way forever. That is our hope. As we hope, as we look forward to the day when all things will will be unified, Things on heaven and and things on earth will be brought to complete unity under one head, Christ. It's one future that we're all looking forward to. This present world may still be full of death and brokenness and strife and fractured relationships, and we still live in this world. But when we trusted in Christ, our train jumped the tracks, and we are now headed toward a new future, a new destination, which is about healing and wholeness and unity and reconciliation. And and that's why there are all those heaven jokes, right? The the ones about where we're all going to be in heaven one day, the the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Republicans, the Democrats. So we might as well, the punchline always has to do with, we might as well start getting along now, right? That's our future. That's our destiny. So why wait? In fact, we better not wait because for us who are in Christ, it's begun. It's begun. We as a church are to live now as a foretaste of what's to come in the future. I I love the way commentator Peter O'Brien puts it. The unity of the church is the means by which the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to the universe. The church is the eschatological, the future outpost, the pilot project of God's purposes, and his people are the expression of this unity that displays to the universe his final goal. Wow. So we share the same future. We also, second, share the same status. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all got into the body of Christ the same way. We put our faith in the same Lord And we were baptized into the same Jesus. And and when we come to Christ, therefore, we we all come as equals. Nobody's better than anyone else. Nobody has anything to offer or brag about. As the old hymn put it, nothing in my hand I bring simply to his cross I cling. And so has been said many times, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And boy, doesn't that cut right to the heart of, of doesn't it cut the heart right out of most of the things we disagree about? We share the same status. 
Third, we, we all serve the same God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. John Stott puts it well. He says, there can only be one Christian family because there's only one God. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then there's only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It's no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. So one future, one status, one God. To maintain our unity, we have to keep our focus on that reality. So here's the challenge as we end. There's Jesus. I I know it's not what he really looked like. He wasn't really white. He wasn't really European. But I needed a picture you'd recognize as Jesus. (laughs) So bear with it. (laughs) We, We want the world to see Jesus, right? That's part of our mission as a church, that we would show Christ. But here's the thing. It's hard to see through fractured glass. We live in a very fractured world. How is the world ever going to see Jesus through us if we're fractured too? So let's make every effort to keep, to guard, to protect the unity of the Spirit. Amen.